Chapter Six, Part Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris in Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Six, Chapter Six, Part Two. During a whole year, I paid Monsieur Curbillon three visits every week, and from him I learned all I know of the French language, but I found it impossible to get rid of my Italian idioms. I remark that turn easily enough when I meet with it in other people, but it flows naturally from my pen without my being aware of it. I am satisfied that, whatever I may do, I shall never be able to recognize it any more than I could find out what consists the bad Latin style so constantly alleged against Livy. I composed a stanza of eight verses on some subject which I do not recollect, and gave it to Crebillon, and asked him to correct it. He read it attentively, and said to me, These eight verses are good and regular, the thought is fine and truly poetical, the style is perfect, and yet the stanza is bad. How so? I do not know. I cannot tell you what is wanting. Imagine that you see a man handsome, well-made, amiable, witty, in fact perfect, according to your most severe judgment. A woman comes in, sees him, looks at him, and goes away telling you that the man does not please her. But what fault do you find in him, madam? None, only he does not please me. You look again at the man, you examine him a second time, and you find that, in order to give him an heavenly voice, he has been deprived of that other which constitutes a man." and you are compelled to acknowledge that a spontaneous feeling has stood the woman in good stead. It was by that comparison that Crebillon explained to me a thing almost inexplicable, for taste and feeling alone can account for a thing which is subject to no rule whatever. We spoke a great deal of Louis the Fourteenth, whom Crebillon had known well for fifteen years, and he related several very curious anecdotes which are generally unknown. Amongst other things, he assured me that the Siamese ambassadors were cheats, paid by the Madame de Montaignon. He told us likewise that he never finished his tragedy of Cromwell, because the king had told him one day not to wear out his pen on a scoundrel. Crebillon mentioned likewise his tragedy of Catalina, and he told me that, in his opinion, it was the most efficient of his works, but that he would never have consented, even to make a good tragedy, to represent Caesar as a young man, because he would in that case have made the public laugh, as they would do if Medea were to appear previous to her acquaintances with Jason. He praised the talent of Voltaire very highly, but he accused him of having stolen from him, Crebillon, the scene of the Senate. He, however, rendered him full justice, saying that he was a true historian, and able to write history as well as tragedies, but that he unfortunately adulterated history by mixing it with such a number of light anecdotes and tales for the sake of rendering it more attractive. According to Crebillon, the man with the iron mask was nothing but an idle tale, and he had been assured of it by Louis the Fourteenth himself. On the day of my first meeting with Crebillon at Sylvia's, Kenier, a play by Madame de Graffigny, was performed at the Italian theatre, and I went away early in order to get a good seat in the pit. The ladies, all covered with diamonds, who were taking possession of the private boxes, engrossed all my interest and all my attention. 
I wore a very fine suit, but my open ruffles and buttons all along my coat showed at once that I was a foreigner, for the fashion was not the same in Paris. I was gaping in the air and listlessly looking around when a gentleman, splendidly dressed and three times stouter than I, came up and inquired whether I was a foreigner. I answered affirmatively, and he politely asked me how I liked Paris. I praised Paris very warmly, but at that moment a very stout lady, brilliant with diamonds, entered the box near us. Her enormous size astonished me, and like a fool I said to the gentleman, Who is that fat sow? She is the wife of this fat pig. Ha! I beg your pardon a thousand times. But the stout gentleman cared nothing for my apologies, and very far from being angry he almost choked with laughter. This was the happy result of the practical and natural philosophy which Frenchmen cultivate so well, and which inspires the happiness of their existence under an appearance of frivolity. I was confused, I was in despair, but the stout gentleman continued to laugh heartily. At last he left the pit, and a minute afterwards I saw him enter the box and speak to his wife. I was keeping an eye on them without daring to look at them openly, and suddenly the lady, following the example of her husband, burst into a loud laugh, their mirth making me more uncomfortable. I was leaving the pit, when the husband called out to me, Sir, sir. I could not go away without being guilty of impoliteness, and I went up to their box. Then, with a serious countenance and with great affability, he begged my pardon for having laughed so much, and very graciously invited me to come to his house and sup with them that same evening. I thanked them politely, saying that I had a previous engagement, but he renewed his entreaties, and his wife, pressing me in the most engaging manner, I told them, in order to prove that I was not trying to elude their invitation, that I was expected to sup at Sylvia's house. In that case, I am certain, said the gentleman, of obtaining your release if you do not object. Allow me to go myself to Sylvia. It would have been uncourteous on my part to resist any longer. He left the box and returned almost immediately with my friend Baletti who told me that his mother was delighted to see me making such excellent acquaintances, and that she would expect to see me at dinner the next day. He whispered to me that my new acquaintance was Monsieur de Beauchamp, receiver general of taxes. As soon as the performance was over, I offered my hand to Madame, and we drove to their mansion in a magnificent carriage. There I found the abundance, or rather the profusion, which in Paris is exhibited by the men of finance numerous society, high play, good cheer, and open cheerfulness. The supper was not over till one in the morning. Madame's private carriage drove me to my lodgings. That house offered me a kind welcome during my whole stay in Paris, and I must add that my new friends proved very useful to me. Some persons assert that foreigners find the first night in Paris very dull, because a little time is necessary to get introduced but I was fortunate enough to find myself established on as good a footing as I could desire within twenty-four hours, and the consequence was that I felt delighted with Paris, and certain that my stay would prove an agreeable one. The next morning Patou called, and made me a present of his prose panegyric of the Marchal de Saxe. We went out together, and took a walk in the Tuileries, where he introduced me to Madame de Bocage, who made a good jest in speaking of the Marchal de Saxe. It is singular, she said, that we cannot have a de profundis for a man who makes us sing the Te Deum so often. As we left the Tuileries, 
Patou took me to the house of a celebrated actress of the opera, Mademoiselle Lefel, the favorite of all Paris and a member of the Royal Academy of Music. She had three very young and charming children who were fluttering around her like butterflies. I adore them, she said to me. They deserve adoration for their beauty, I answered, although they all have a different cast of countenance. No wonder. The eldest is the son of the Duke de Anneke, the second of Count de Egmont. The youngest is the offspring of Maison Rouge, who has just married the Romainville. Ah, pray excuse me. I thought you were the mother of the three. You are not mistaken. I am their mother. As she said those words, she looked at Patou, and both burst into hearty laughter, which did not make me blush, but which showed me my blunder. I was a novice in Paris, and I had not become accustomed to see women encroach upon the privilege which men alone generally enjoy. Yet Mademoiselle Lefel was not a bold-faced woman. She was even rather ladylike, but she was what is called above prejudices. If I had known the manners of the time better, I should have been aware that such things were in everyday occurrences, and that the noblemen who thus sprinkled their progeny everywhere were in the habit of leaving their children in the hands of their mothers, who were well paid. The more fruitful, therefore, these ladies were, the greater was their income. My want of experience often led me into serious blunders, and Mademoiselle Lefel would, I have no doubt, have laughed at any one telling her that I had some wit, after the stupid mistakes of which I had been guilty. Another day, being at the house of Lani, ballet master of the opera, I saw five or six young girls of thirteen or fourteen years of age, accompanied by their mothers, all exhibiting that air of modesty which is the characteristic of a good education. I addressed a few gallant words to them, and they answered me with downcast eyes. One of them, having complained of the headache, I offered her my smelling bottle, and one of her companions said to her, Very likely you did not sleep well last night. Oh, it is not that, answered that modest-looking Agnes. I think I am in the family way. On receiving this unexpected reply from a girl I had taken for a maiden, I said to her, I should never have supposed you were married, madam. She looked at me with evident surprise for a moment. Then she turned towards her friend, and both began to laugh immoderately. Ashamed, but for them more than for myself, I left the house with a firm resolution never again to take virtue for granted in a class of women amongst whom it is so scarce. To look for, even to suppose modesty, amongst the nymphs of the green room, is indeed to be very foolish. They pride themselves upon having none, and laugh at those who are simple enough to suppose them better than they are. Thanks to my friend Patou, I made the acquaintance of all the women who enjoyed some reputation in Paris. He was fond of the fair sex, but unfortunately for him he had not a constitution like mine, and his love of pleasure killed him very early. If he had lived, he would have gone down to posterity in the wake of Voltaire, but he paid the debt of nature at the age of thirty. I learned from him the secret which several young French literati employ in order to make certain of the perfection of their prose. When they want to write anything requiring as perfect a style as they can obtain, such as panegyrics, funeral orations, eulogies, dedications, etc. It was by surprise that I arrested that secret from Patou. Being at his house one morning, I observed on his table several sheets of paper covered with dodecasyllabic blank verse. 
I read a dozen of them, and I told him that, although the verses were very fine, the reading caused me more pain than pleasure. They express the same idea as the panegyric of the Marshal de Saxe, but I confess that your prose pleases me a great deal more. My prose would not have pleased you so much if it had not been at first composed in blank verse. Then you take very great trouble for nothing. No trouble at all, for I have not the slightest difficulty in writing that sort of poetry. I write it as easily as prose. Do you think that prose is better when you compose it from your own poetry? No doubt of it. It is much better. And I also secure the advantage that my prose is not full of half-verses which flow from the pen of the writer without his being aware of it. Is that a fault? A great one, and not one to be forgiven. Prose intermixed with occasional verses is worse than prosaic poetry. It is true that the verses which, like parasites, steal into the funeral oration, must be sadly out of place. Certainly, take the example of Tacitus, who begins his history of Rome by these words, Urbum Romum a principo reges abuere. They form a very poor Latin hexameter, which the great historian certainly never made on purpose, and which he never remarked when he revised his work, for there is no doubt that, if he had observed it, he would have altered that sentence. Are not such verses considered a blemish in Italian prose? Decidedly, but I must say that a great many poor writers have purposefully inserted such verses into their prose, believing that they would make it more euphonious. Hence the tawdriness which is generally alleged against much Italian literature. But I suppose you are the only writer who takes such pains. The only one? Certainly not. All the authors who can compose blank verses very easily, as I can, employ them when they intend to make a fair copy of their prose. Ask Crebillon, the Abbe de Vaucon, Le Arpe, anyone you like. They will all tell you the same thing. Voltaire was the first to have recourse to that art in the very small pieces in which his prose is truly charming. For instance, the epistle to Madame du Châtelet, which is magnificent. Read it, and if you find a single hemistitch in it, I will confess myself in the wrong. I felt some curiosity about the matter, and I asked Crebillon about it. He told me that Patou was right, and, but he added that he had never practiced that art himself. Patou wished very much to take me to the opera, to witness the effect produced upon me by the performance, which must truly astonish an Italian. Le Fête Vétienne was the title of the opera, which was in vogue just then, a title full of interest for me. We went for our forty sous to the pit, in which, although the audience was standing, the company was excellent, for the opera was the true amusement of other Parisians. After a symphony, very fine in its way, and executed by an excellent orchestra, the curtain rises, and I see a beautiful scene representing the small St. Mark's Square in Venice, taken from the Isle of St. George. But I am shocked to see the ducal palace on my left, and the tall steeple on my right, that is to say the very reverse of reality. I laugh at this ridiculous mistake, and Patou, to whom I say why I am laughing, cannot help joining me. The music, very fine, although in the ancient style, at first amused me on account of its novelty, but it soon wearied me. The malopaea fatigued me by its constant and tedious monotony, and by the shrieks given out by the season. That meliopaea 
of the French replaces, at least they think so, the Greek Melipiopia, and are recitative, which they dislike, but which they would admire if they understood Italian. The action of the opera was limited to a day in the Carnival, when the Venetians are in the habit of promenading massed in St. Mark's Square. The stage was animated by gallants, procuresses, and women amusing themselves with all sorts of intrigues. The costumes were whimsical and erroneous, but the whole was amusing. I laughed very heartily, and it was truly a curious sight for a Venetian, when I saw the doge, followed by twelve counsellors, appear on the stage, all dressed in the most ludicrous style, and dancing a pas d'ensemble. Suddenly the whole of the pit burst into loud applause at the appearance of a tall, well-made dancer, wearing a mask and an enormous black wig, the hair of which went halfway down his back, and dressed in a robe, open in the front and reaching to his heels. Patou said, almost reverently, It is the imimitable Dupre. I had heard of him before, and became attentive. I saw that fine figure coming forward with measured steps, and when the dancer had arrived in front of the stage, he raised slowly his rounded arms, stretching them gracefully backwards and forwards, moved his feet with precision and lightness, took a few small steps, made some battements and pirouettes, and disappeared like a butterfly. The whole had not lasted half a minute. The applause burst from every part of the house. I was astonished, and asked my friend the cause of all those bravos. We applaud the grace of Dupre, and the divine harmony of his movements. He is now sixty years of age, and those who saw him forty years ago say that he is always the same. What? Has he never danced in a different style? He could not have danced in a better one, for his style is perfect, and what can you want above perfection? Nothing, unless it be a relative perfection. But here it is absolute. Dupree always does the same thing, and every day we fancy we see it for the first time. Such is the power of the good and beautiful, of the true and sublime, which speak to the soul. His dance is true harmony, the real dance, of which you have no idea in Italy. At the end of the second act, Dupree appeared again, still with a mask, and danced to a different tune, but in my opinion doing exactly the same as before. He advanced to the very footlights, and stopped one instant in a graceful attitude. Patu wanted to force my admiration, and I gave way. Suddenly, everyone around me exclaimed, Look, look, he is developing himself. And, in reality, he was like an elastic body, which, in developing itself, would get larger. I made Patu very happy by telling him that Dupree was truly very graceful in all his movements. Immediately after him, we had a female dancer, who jumped about like a fury, cutting to the right and left, but heavily, yet she was applauded con fuore. That is, said Patou, the famous Carmago. I congratulate you, my friend, on having arrived in Paris in time to see her, for she has accomplished her twelfth luster. I confess that she was a wonderful dancer. She is the first artist, continued my friend, who has dared to spring and jump on a French stage. None ventured upon doing it before her, and what is more extraordinary, she does not wear any drawers. I beg your pardon, but I saw. What? Nothing but her skin, which, to speak the truth, is not made of lilies and roses. The Camargo, I said, in an air of repentance, does not please me. I like Dupree much better. 
An elderly admirer of Carmago, seated on my left, told me that in her youth she could perform the saut de basque and even the gogolade, and that nobody had ever seen her thighs, although she always danced without drawers. But if you never saw her thighs, how do you know she does not wear silk tights? Oh, that is one of those things that can be easily ascertained. I see you are a foreigner, sir. You are right. But I was delighted at the French opera, with the rapidity of the scenic changes which are done like lightning, at the signal of a whistle, a thing entirely unknown in Italy. I likewise admired the start given to the orchestra by the baton of the leader, but he disgusted me with the movements of a scepter right and left, as if he thought he could give life to all the instruments by the mere motion of his arm. I admired also the silence of the audience, a thing truly wonderful to an Italian, for it is with great reason that people complain of the noise made in Italy while the artists are singing, and ridicule the silence which prevails through the house as soon as the dancers make their appearance on the stage. One would imagine that all the intelligence of the Italians is in their eyes. At the same time, I must observe that there is not one country in the world in which extravagance and whimsicalness cannot be found, because the foreigner can make comparisons with what he has seen elsewhere, whilst the natives are not conscious of their errors. Altogether, the opera pleased me, but the French comedy captivated me. There the French are truly in their element. They perform splendidly, in a masterly manner, and other nations cannot refuse them the palm which good taste and justice must award to their superiority. I was in the habit of going there every day, and although sometimes the audience was not composed of two hundred persons, the actors were perfect. I have seen Les Misanthropes, Les Arves, Tartuffes, Les Joueurs, Les Gloriaux, and many other comedies, no matter how often I have saw them. I always fancied it was for the first time. I arrived in Paris to admire Sarrazine, La Diangville, La Dumenzino, La Garcion, La Clarion, Préville, and several actresses who, having retired from the stage, were living upon their pensions, and delighting their circle of friends. I made, amongst others, the acquaintance of the celebrated Le Vesseur. I visited them all with pleasure, and they all related to me several very curious anecdotes. They were generally most kindly disposed in every way. One evening, being in the box of Le Vesseur, the performance was composed of a tragedy, in which a very handsome actress had the part of a dumb priestess. How pretty she is, I said. Yes, charming, answered Le Vesseur. She is the daughter of the actor who plays the confidant. She is very pleasant in company, and is an actress of good promise. I should be very happy to make her acquaintance. Oh, well, that is not difficult. Her father and mother are very worthy people, and they will be delighted if you ask them to invite you to supper. They will not disturb you. They will go to bed early, and will let you talk with their daughter as long as you please. You are in France, sir. Here we know the value of life, and try to make the best of it. We love pleasure, and esteem ourselves fortunate when we can find the opportunity of enjoying life. That is very truly charming, madam. But how can I be so bold as to invite myself to supper with worthy persons whom I do not know, and who have not the slightest knowledge of me? <laughs> oh, dear me, what are you saying? We know everybody. You see how I treat you myself. After the performance, I shall be happy to introduce you, and the acquaintance will be made at once. 
I certainly must ask you to do me that honor, but another time. Whenever you like. End of chapter 6, part 2